This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Hi, everybody. Hello. Thanks for joining us once again. Yeah, thank you for joining us. We are on episode three of season four, so welcome back. We would like to say a huge thank you before we start to our newest Patreon supporters. Yeah, we uh, there's loads of you actually again this week. So a uh, huge thanks to Pippa, Emma Milner, Amanda Farley, Susie D., and also huge thanks to Carol Wood and Nada Galvin for increasing their pledges. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Thank you for choosing to support the show. And if you're listening and you don't currently support us, but you would like to support us in this way, you can head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast and check out the support options available. They start from as little as $3 a month. So you can really sort of start on that level. And it just helps us out with producing the show. We, we have loads of stuff going on over there as well. So we've got bonus episodes. Uh, we're releasing a new bonus episode on the last Friday of every month. The most recent one went out, I think, last Friday, maybe the Friday before. No, last, last Friday, Friday. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, the time's just dragged. Um, we've also just announced the winner of our uh, most recent Patreon exclusive competition. Uh, so huge congratulations to Catherine Hughes. Catherine's won a six month subscription to a true crime magazine. Well done, Catherine. Well done, Catherine. Yeah, um, thoroughly deserved. Please also don't forget to check us out on social media. Uh, you can uh, find us on your social media platform of your choice. Bethan's written for me here. <laughs> so this week, I have another first for us. And this is our first case from Alaska. Isn't that exciting, Mark? It is actually really exciting because I saw that you'd sent the script over. No, I think I saw the post that you'd put on Instagram. Um, and I saw it was Alaska and I was like, whoa, we, we have definitely never ventured there before. Um, and it's such a re remote location, isn't it? Even though it's part of uh, the US, it's it's really kind of out on a limb. So I think um, I don't know anything about this case. I think it's going to be really interesting to hear what you have to tell us. Yeah, the, the whole thing with Alaska is it's kind of classed as the last frontier. It's the last sort of wild place. And this week I'm going to be taking you to McCarthy, which is a really, really tiny town in the east of Alaska. And it's even more wild than you could imagine. The reason that I heard about this case and that I decided to, that I wanted to kind of share it with you and our listeners is because myself and my other half recently watched a show called Edge of Alaska, which is kind of a reality TV show, a bit like Made in Chelsea, but without shopping, it's got snow. There's farming and slaughtering animals instead of meals in fancy restaurants and long treks across dangerous frozen lakes instead of cars driven by chauffeurs. However, like Made in Chelsea, they're real people, but the scenes are made for your entertainment. <laughs> ah, okay. So constructed reality then. Yeah, and it's a really, really sweet kind of wholesome show. It features a number of real people, although the events seem like they're kind of exaggerated a little bit sometimes. In one episode, they talked about this fatal shooting, which had happened. 
And so I had to straight away go online and and see if this was true. And actually, it really did happen. So I just couldn't resist writing the episode about that. If any of our listeners are wanting something new to watch in lockdown, I would honestly recommend it if you fancy a bit of escapism. However, I will warn you, you will probably want to go and live in a homestead off grid, grow your own food, have some sheep. You'll just you'll just want this life. It's wonderful. What um where, what channel is it on then? Where can we find it? Discovery, I think, is where we're watching it. Edge of Alaska, check it out. Definitely. So McCarthy was first reported on the 1920 US census as an unincorporated village, but its history kind of goes much further back from this. For centuries, native North American people hunted in the area, and Chief Nikolai had a camp nearby in the late 1800s. Copper was discovered, and in the early 1900s, the area became huge for mining, and this area had the richest concentration of copper ore in the world. And so Kennecott Mine, Kennecott Mining Company, and the town of Kennecott were created. The mine is now abandoned, and in the show we watched, they were attempting to get inside to create a tourist attraction. But back to the early 1900s in Kennecott. So the mine was huge, loads of people had kind of travelled to try and make their fortune. Alcohol and prostitution were forbidden in Kennecott, and so McCarthy became an area where people would be able to drink and use the services of sex workers. It soon grew as an area and became a town in its own right, but when the copper was pretty much all mined, the town was abandoned and the miners moved on. The population of McCarthy and Kennecott fell to almost zero in the 1970s, although there has been at least one family there at any time since the 50s. But then the area became a popular spot for people looking for a new adventure in the 70s and 80s, and the town began to thrive again. I say thrive, um, it's still very, very remote. As well as being a refuge for those wanting isolation or even just a break from society, it has become a tourist spot but it still never really had a huge number of residents. In the year 2000, in the census, the town had 42 people across 26 households. Well, the land around McCarthy and Kennecott has been described as severe and unforgiving, and this is really clear when you realise the annual snowfall is about 52 inches. Whoa. And temperatures can drop to around minus 45 degrees C. That's mad. I just literally cannot imagine that. You know, that degree of coldness, that's just vile, isn't it? It does not sound fun. The original railroad, which transported the copper ore to a port 200 miles away, became the main road called the McCarthy Road. And this is still now the only route out to the closest town, Chitna. The 59-mile road is gravel surfaced and often very rough with many washboards and sharp turns, and it isn't maintained during the winter. Once you get from Chitna to the end of the road, you still have to cross a footbridge and then continue on to Kennecott. I believe locals kind of leave vehicles at the end of the bridge to be able to get back into town. And if you didn't want to drive this long journey along a difficult road, you could fly in, which is a lot quicker and pretty beautiful, I should imagine, as well. So this isn't just a small village where everyone knows everyone, like some of the backdrops to some of our other cases. This isn't a place where the pub falls silent when a stranger walks in. This is a place where the only bar is a building that can comfortably fit about 20 people, there is no law enforcement or hospital, and the nearest location with these facilities is over 100 miles away. If you live in McCarthy, it's more than just knowing the gossip. It's knowing who to turn to for mechanical help, animal support, who you can call on to help building something, and you have to have each other's back. 
If there are wolves attacking or bears nearby, you all need to look out for each other. You'll rely on your neighbours for a lot and you'll really be part of a community. The residents work incredibly hard and their lives do not look easy, but you can tell that the friendships are real and based on respect and true love, really, I should say. There are a few residents who've lived in McCarthy for a long time, and so featured on the show are people including Gary Green and Tim Mitchell. Gary has a light aircraft and is a real lifeline for many of the residents, and he kind of reminds me of Richard Branson. He's got flowing hair and he always has a smile and a wave. There's also Tim, and he's an old bloke who just lives out in the middle of nowhere, but people are always helping him out. So people don't just happen to live there. They make conscious choices to go and live off-grid to take on the challenge of this hard but rewarding lifestyle. And in doing so, they form bonds that are more than just friendship. So the reason I've really tried to paint you an image of this tiny, tiny town is because I want you to understand the absolute shock and horror that was felt one day in 1983 when one of this tight-knit community turned a gun on not one but a number of his neighbours. Yeah, I must admit you've painted a really vivid picture of it. Um, and I've gone from thinking it sounds a bit rubbish to if that's what you're into, it's the perfect place to be. And there sounds like there's that lovely sense of not just community, but it sounds kind of a bit wanky, but almost like a family, isn't it? Because there's so few residents and they're so dependent on each other for everything, including survival. A bit wanky. Well, you know what I mean. But it, it sounds <laughs> no, I great, do. to be it fair. It is. It really is. Yeah. And I just yeah. think, like, yeah, you painted that really well. And then to hear that actually somebody turned a gun on a number of, of his neighbours in 1983. That is really shocking. So I think, yeah, I'm intrigued already. I'm glad. So let me tell you a little bit about Louis D. Hastings, our gunman in today's story. Hastings was born on the 1st of January 1944 in Kansas. He was abused by his dad and was a shy child, and as a child he was treated for chronic depression He loved animals, even at one point volunteering to help clean birds after an oil spill. And following the footsteps of his father, who had served for his country, Hastings served in the Air Force. And then later, he became a computer programmer. In June 1979, Hastings married Madeline D. Stovall, a Stanford librarian, and they spent their honeymoon at the Kennecott Lodge near McCarthy. This trip was to change their lives as they fell in love with the place and decided to quit their jobs in California and moved to Alaska the following spring. In 1980, they moved to Anchorage, and Hastings opened a computer service company working out of their house. But sadly, the couple's sort of grand plans really didn't go too well. In the summer of 1982, they bought a summer home in Kennecott and decided that Hastings would be doing that up. But the strains of his failing business and their marriage kind of deteriorating meant that they ended up spending a lot of time apart. So Madeline was at their home in Anchorage and Hastings would spend most of his time in Kennecott at the cabin. But this new life wasn't the idyllic one that he had dreamed of. Instead of finding himself in a wild land far from California, Hastings had arrived in the state which was in the throes of development. And the main part of this was the opening of the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline, which is an 800-mile pipeline And it renewed the natural resource economy in Alaska and is actually still today running. It's now responsible for transporting 25% of the total US oil production. So at this point, Hastings was really disturbed by the idea of this happening, feeling that the wilderness was at risk. He began to see himself as a saviour of Alaska and wanted to bring it back to being the wild place that it once was. 
He felt it was his duty to stop the Trans-Alaska pipeline before it could do any more damage. So I will make sure I put some pictures up of the Trans-Alaska pipeline. I can kind of see where he's coming from. It's mad when you look at it. It's just this huge, huge pipeline that goes 800 miles across the country. Do they sink it into the ground? No, it's just there. So it's almost a bit like HS2 in this country where, you know, we've got this railway line that we're looking to build and it just kind of rips through the whole country. I'm not saying I'm for or against that, but um, I kind of understand how um, that can interfere with a lot of stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good comparison for our UK listeners, absolutely. And there's a lot of people who feel very strongly about that as well. And yeah, I mean, at first when I was researching this, I was a bit like, okay, calm down. And then I saw the pictures of it and I thought, you know what, I completely get what he's saying. And it wasn't just the fact that there's going to be all this pipeline, you know, kind of ruining the, the look of the landscape. There's going to be loads of people around, loads of industry, loads of people working, people moving to the area as well. So he kind of felt like, yeah, it was his duty to save Alaska. He began to make a plan in his mind and over the course of a year he solidified his plans. He decided that the only way to sort things out once and for all was his plan. So he bought guns and he bought at least 2,000 rounds of ammunition and practices shooting. He built a silencer. And he spent time on this plan. He also compiled a list of 200 of Alaska's political and civic leaders, including their telephone numbers and their home addresses. And he decided that his only course of action was to wipe out the town, kill the mail plane's pilot, use the plane to dump the bodies of his victims, use the plane to damage the pipeline, and in the process, kill himself. That, I mean, that is one hell of a plan, isn't it? Exactly. And I mean, it's... It doesn't even make any sense. Like, how is that going to save anything? No, because like, I'm just kind of thinking about that. So, you know, in theory, he could wipe out the town. He could uh, use that plane to dump the bodies and, and then crash the plane into part of the pipe. But this is an 800 mile pipeline. So crashing a plane into a section of it just means that that section needs to be rebuilt. Yeah. I think his thinking was that nobody would want to keep going if they realised what damage it was doing but I really don't think that anybody who's a part of this would think well let's stop the pipeline because it's damaging it would be that guy damaged all of this so on the 1st of March 1983 Hastings decided to put his plan into action the night before he played a board game with his friend Chris Richards during that evening Chris mentioned that a couple of the 22 residents of McCarthy were away on a skiing trip and he thought it was a bit odd that his friend seemed rather disappointed about this information. The pair continued their evening talking about trees they were thinking about cutting down to use for firewood and eventually the game ended, Hastings left and went home to his cabin. So something else to make you aware of here, 10 years before this, floods had washed out the bridge that had once stood over the Kennecott River. And so the only way into or out of McCarthy by land at this point in 1983 was by a hand-powered tram. In 1983, McCarthy had no running water, no telephones and no electricity except for that produced by individual generators on people's properties. So it was well and truly off the grid and really inaccessible. And another piece of anecdotal information that will kind of become a bit more relevant is that the mail was brought in by plane every Tuesday. This seems to be kind of a common thing 
in rural areas that the mail plane comes on a certain day each week and and by plane as well because I guess there's no road access. So Mr and Mrs Hegland, an older couple who had lived in Alaska for 27 years, were known as the unofficial postmasters of McCarthy. They lived less than 100 yards from one end of the runway and had built an addition to their porch which was always left unlocked. Groceries and packages brought in on the mail plane were left here for the residents to come and collect and often the residents of McCarthy would make the trek to the Hegland house to wait on a Tuesday together so it gave them a chance to catch up with each other and have a chat. People in McCarthy would conversationally refer to mail day as simply mail like it's a place or an event so they'd say I'm going to mail do you have anything going out that you want me to take or I'm going to mail will I see you there. Every Tuesday, the Heglin's place was where neighbours would congregate, they'd have a hot drink and they'd exchange all the gossip. And one quote was, see, Tuesday is mail plane day. You can have Easter, you can have Thanksgiving, you can have Christmas, but it's not as important as Tuesday. Everybody meets at the Heglin's house to visit and get the mail. They got mail once a week and made contact. Which I think is really quite wholesome. It is, isn't it? And I think this is because this is, we're talking 1983 at this point. So um, there would have been no mobile phones, there'd have been no internet. Um, So it was probably one of the uh, few ways, like one of the only ways along with telephone to get in touch with people um, outside of that particular area. And Alaska in itself is so remote. So um, yeah, I can imagine it would be a really exciting day, wouldn't it, Tuesday? And on this particular Tuesday, March the 1st, 1983, a number of the town's 22 residents were preparing to do just that. So there was Maxine and Jim Edwards. They were a couple in their 50s who lived on a homestead on the west side of the Kennecott River. So Maxine set off with a plastic sled towards the Heglin's house ready for the weekly get-together. Also headed towards the airstrip was a 61-year-old man named Harley King. He was a retired commercial fisherman and hunting guide who lived with his wife Jo on a homestead off McCarthy Road. He was planning to head out of town on the mail plane when it left and he was giving his neighbour Donna Byram a lift on the back of his snowmobile over to the airstrip. Chris Richards, the guy who had been playing a board game with Hastings the night before, was up and preparing his breakfast in his kitchen when his friend returned. He said hi to Hastings, probably planning to just offer coffee to his unexpected guests or have a chat. And he expected that Hastings was planning to meet the mail plane as well. Hastings had a heavy backpack with him which he set down and Chris turned back to the stove to continue prepping his meal. It must have seemed like any other day, but what happened next was probably the last thing you would ever expect to happen. It's the stuff of nightmares. He turned his head and felt something hit his right cheek and it shattered his glasses. He ducked instinctively and something hit the top of his head. Shocked, he spun back around towards Hastings and looked straight down the barrel of a rifle. So the two men began to fight. Hastings was hell-bent on killing Chris and Chris was screaming at him to stop. At one point, Hastings even told him, look, you're already dead. If you just quit fighting, I'll make it easy for you. But Chris was not going to go down easily. He grabbed a knife from the draining rack in the sink and began to fight his friend away. First, he stabbed Hastings in the upper left chest and then he stabbed him again in the right leg before making his escape. He fled out into the waist-deep snow, wearing just his socks, light trousers and a t-shirt and one of his slippers. Scrambling in the snow, shivering and bleeding, Chris made his way three quarters of a mile up a steep hill to a neighbouring cabin that was empty at this point. As he fled, Hastings fired at him again and again, 
One shot nicking Chris's right arm, but luckily none were fatal. He got to the safety of this other cabin and helped himself to some winter clothes and boots and a pair of snowshoes. Dressed more appropriately for the weather, which I believe I read was minus 15 degrees C at this point. So he made his way over to the home of the Nashes. So the Nashes lived in a cabin on the trail that connected Kennecott to McCarthy, and when the injured Chris arrived at their door, they quickly began patching up his wounds, whilst he breathlessly told them what had happened. They had actually seen Hastings headed towards McCarthy 20 minutes earlier, so the trio armed themselves and set out to go and warn anyone who was congregated at the Heglund's home. As they left, Hastings actually made his way to the Nashes to kill them too, but he got there when they'd already gone so they weren't home. And some articles that I read didn't mention this, and some did, so I'm not really sure how true it is, but apparently he tried to set fire to their cabin, and then he went on his way with more guns to continue his rampage. Have you just made that up because you're obsessed with fire, as we established? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just just because I love fire. No, it wasn't mentioned in some, and it was mentioned in others, which I found a bit strange, so not sure how true it is. And by some, I mean my articles. No, I, don't, I didn't make it up. So the Nashes took their snowmobile and dragged Chris behind on a sled, and they hurried across the countryside, guns at the ready. As they arrived at the airstrip, they saw a man called Gary Green, who I mentioned earlier as one of the main kind of characters, as it were, on the TV show. Gary was clearing snow off his plane, and he was shocked when he heard from the trio what had happened that morning. He had actually spotted Hastings earlier, headed towards the Heglund's homestead, so they decided he would get his plane ready to fly, so he could go and alert the authorities and get help and take Chris to get medical attention. And then Tim Nash would go and check on Mr and Mrs Hegland. So Gary warmed up the plane and then he taxied to the end of the airstrip and loaded the injured Chris onto the plane with the help of Amy Nash. Tim got to the Hegland house and was faced with a horrific scene. Inside the house, the walls were covered in blood and there was a thick smell of gun smoke hanging in the air. Unbeknownst to him, Hastings had arrived at the homestead and kicked open the door, shot both Les and Flo Hegland and Maxine Edwards, who had headed over that morning to wait for the mail. Hastings had killed them all, shot them again to be certain in the head, and then had stacked their bodies up in a rear bedroom. When Tim arrived, he saw the destruction, and then he spotted Hastings on the back porch and fired at him with his shotgun, but the shot hit the door. Hastings returned fire and injured Tim's leg, and then he fled. Tim made his way back to the airstrip and rejoined his wife, whilst Gary took off in his plane with Chris. Gary watched from the plane the Nashes walking towards each other and he radioed the approaching mail plane and told it not to land and then he also radioed the state police. Gary was the only person in town that day not to get hurt and he saved Chris's life by getting him to a nearby place called Glen Allen. So the Nashes were still on the runway ready to warn anyone else who may be headed towards the Hegland home but Hastings hadn't fled far. He had actually backtracked along a dog sled trail back to the airstrip. He was hidden from the view of the Nashes by a mound of snow and he snuck around behind this to attack them. Firing a number of rounds, he hit and killed both Tim and Amy. Getting closer and closer, Hastings continued to fire until finally he shot them at close range and dragged their bodies away. He dragged them to the mound of snow and kind of tried to hide the bodies and then he took up a hidden position to wait for more victims. Something I thought was really sad with this as well is that Tim had tried to tell Amy to get on the plane with Gary and Chris, but she'd said, no, I'll stay here with you and we'll 
warn everybody. Isn't that awful? And he was doing the right thing, thinking I'll protect her. And But, you know, I suppose they loved each other and she didn't want to leave him. Yeah. So Harley and Donna, who I mentioned earlier, were making their way over together. Harley had offered his neighbour a lift, so she was on a sled that was being pulled at the back of his snowmobile. As they arrived at the airstrip, they were kind of shocked to see blood and they were discussing how strange it was that somebody would be hunting so close to the runway. They carefully approached, wondering what was happening, but then they saw the partially hidden bodies of the Nashes. Immediately after this, Hastings began to fire at them and Donna saw bullets hit Harley and the vehicle and one bullet hit Donna in the arm. Harley sped up, trying to escape, but he lost control of the snowmobile as his leg was badly broken, and the pair were thrown from the snowmobile, which flipped over. Donna started to drag Harley back onto it to try and flee. He told her it was too late, she should just try and save herself, that he couldn't move so he wasn't going to make it. So she fled with her injured arm into a trail through the trees. As she ran towards the Hegland's house, she heard more shots. Hastings had caught up to Harley King and shot him twice in the head. When Donna got to the Heglands, she was too scared to go inside. She hid in an outside greenhouse, terrified for her life. Hastings followed and was searching for her, calling out, One not dead, one not dead. Donna shook as she cowered in the greenhouse, listening to the wind rustling the plastic walls, hearing the shooter's boots stomping around as he stalked his prey, terrified that she would be discovered. But luckily for Donna, Hastings couldn't see her and he gave up leaving her hiding, cradling her injured arm, and he headed off on the Nash's snowmobile. That reminded me so much of um, Joanne Lees on the Peter Falconio episode, mm-hmm. um, when she was hiding in the outback in the bush, and Bradley Murdoch was kind of hunting for oh my God, her. He just walked straight past, didn't he? Yeah, and he had his dog as well, and he, he had a torch, and he was kind of, I think he spent like a couple of hours looking for her, and finally gave up and literally just missed her. And she got away with her life. It's just horrific, isn't it? Thinking you're just, this woman's just there cowering, just, Mm. yeah. We had an interesting little conversation about uh, the Falconio, Joanne Lee's case the other day, didn't we? did, yeah. Which I'm not going to repeat on this show. It was... uh, Maybe we could redo the episode and have another discussion. (laughs) No way, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) No, it was a private conversation, wasn't it? No. Say no more. So they're not going to get to hear any of that. Okay. That's yeah, nice. sorry, guys. But no, I'm, I'm just, no, I'm saying nothing. You're just talking shit. I'm not, Betham, because we were talking to that guy. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> and I was like, but anyway, carry on. Thank you. I shall. So thankfully for Donna, the police arrived in a helicopter soon afterwards and it was one that was like an unmarked helicopter. Hastings wasn't really expecting this. He'd figured they'd arrive by plane so he'd be able to see them touching down on the runway and instead this kind of surprised him and they managed to track him down. The state troopers tracked him down and approached him and when they did approach him he offered no resistance. I guess he figured Chris was dead and he didn't know that he'd been taken to safety in Gary's plane because Hastings told the state troopers he was Chris Richards and please help, Louis Hastings has gone berserk killing people. Luckily, the troopers had his description and of course they knew that Chris was miles away in hospital so they arrested him then and there. Oh, sorry, I didn't understand that. So he, so Hastings was saying that he was Chris Richards yeah. and therefore innocent, but obviously they knew yeah, that wasn't the case, right? Like, oh, can oh, okay, me? yeah. Louis yeah. Hastings has gone mad, and then they were like, "No, we we yeah. quite clearly know this is you." 
They kind of bundled him into the helicopter and flew towards McCarthy to search for survivors and Hastings had to admit, really, yeah, I am who you wanted. At the Hegland home, they found Donna and so the state troopers took both Hastings and Donna in their helicopter to Glen Allen. Which must have been a horrific journey. All of them sat in this tiny helicopter and he's the one that was hunting her down. That's weird, isn't it? Hours earlier. That is really weird situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of it's a weird situation to have been involved in, of course it is, but for it to kind of end like that, where you're, you know, stuck in a confined space with the person that's just done that, yeah. weird. So the danger was finally over, but six of the town of McCarthy's population of 22 had perished in the massacre. Gary Green said later, I'm the only one in town that day that didn't get shot. It wasn't an easy thing to come back to. I cleaned up all the blood which I just thought was so horrible. And also, when you've talked about people getting killed and injured kind of in the open air, can you imagine that juxtaposition between that virginal white snow and that, Mm -hmm. you know, that blood spilled all over it? Yeah, it's quite vivid, isn't it? Exactly, and it was winter, so it would have been snowy. So Hastings' plan and the part that Gary had played in thwarting this evil endeavour was revealed. Hastings had decided to voluntarily disrupt the pipeline project by firstly killing off all the townsfolk as they waited for the mail plane to arrive. And he said he was then going to kill the pilot, fly the plane 80 miles to a pump station. He was then going to steal a fuel, fuel truck, drive it into the pipeline project whilst shooting at the pipeline. And he expected that the pipeline would then catch fire and he'd also be killed in the blaze, as well as the pipeline project being majorly damaged. His efforts would have killed off the town's small population and nobody would realise that he was the mass murderer because he'd also been killed. His plan even included the idea that doing this in winter meant any spilt oil would congeal so it would minimise the environmental impact. That's really good of him. I know, kill off the entire town but save the animals. But Hastings wasn't successful in his plan, luckily he was stopped. However, in this one morning he had killed Maxine Edwards, Flo Hegland, Les Hegland, Harley King, Amy Nash and Tim Nash. The residents were left in a state of absolute shock that this could happen. The trust that they had built up as a close community was absolutely rocked. Yes, Hastings wasn't the chattiest guy, but that wasn't a reason to suspect he would do this. The people who lived in McCarthy and Kennecott were used to people wanting to make the most of Tuesday mail drop, because especially in the long winter months, there wasn't much else in the way of human interaction. These guys literally had Tuesdays, mail day. So it was unusual for someone not to embrace this opportunity to gossip. But aside from Hastings not being very chatty, nothing else really stood out about him to anybody. One resident who wasn't there that day, Loy, felt that Hastings' clothes were a bit strange, but in a 1997 interview, remembered a conversation he'd had with the pilot Gary before the massacre, in which he said, you know that Lou, he's kind of strange. And Gary answered, well, so are you, we all are, so what? And Loy said in the interview, everyone here is a little strange in their way. So, okay, here's just another strange guy and he's not doing anything. He's antisocial, but we're not tremendously social anyway, so we don't pay much attention. So Lou's strange, so what? Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? It really does. These are not, no no offence to these guys, but these are not normal people living in that community. No, they've gone there for a reason, haven't they? They've gone there to get away from society. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Another resident who was luckily out of town during the shooting wrote in his police report that whilst Hastings was quiet and reserved and some of his behaviour seemed a little bit odd, like going back and forth towards Anchorage, the townsfolk had a real live-and-let-live attitude and a lot of the quirks of Hastings, like wanting to be left alone most of the time, weren't very different to those of the other residents, exactly like you said. And the fact that Hastings had killed people from this area for the purpose of saving Alaska just seemed ridiculous to them. Bonnie Morris, standing by the spot where her friends were killed, was quoted as saying, and nobody came in here and wiped out the pillars of one of the very few self-sufficient communities in Alaska. So he'd tried to save Alaska from modernisation by actually attempting to wipe out one of the very truly off-grid places and it was one of the few places left on the continent. And a place that had a lot of history as well. Exactly. Bonnie continued, These people lying around here were not your average people. These are the people who inspired the rest of us when we came here to build a sane, healthy life. And Hastings' prosecutor said in a newspaper article in 1983, In the name of Alaska, he destroyed part of Alaska and the Alaskan life. The irony is that he comes up from overpopulated California moves into the midst of such beauty, and then in order to protect the beauty, he single-handedly wipes out a whole town. It's just nobody could quite understand what was going on in his mind. And things changed from that day on. Chris Richards said 15 years later, when he was discussing mail, mail day, we'd sit around, have tea and cookies. It was, you know, the big social event of the week. And everybody from miles around that could get there would usually get there and swap bullshit and get their mail and leave. It was a good time. I miss it. It's not the same anymore. Not the same at all. And Loy, who I mentioned earlier, stopped going to greet the plane, as did many residents. Chris Richards ended up carrying a handgun for eight years after the shootings. For weeks after the massacre, the survivors could speak of nothing except the murders and the murderer. They were kind of unable to avoid the stark, constant reminders of the events that had occurred, and they felt that they would never trust an outsider again. But one person eventually spoke up and reminded them all that if they allowed themselves to be wary of anyone from the outside of the town, and if they continued to avoid progress, they were basically allowing Hastings to win. So they took on a group challenge of restoring the tram system and the trams to allow a better access route to town. So the trams cables had sagged dangerously close to the Kennecott River and they were difficult to use. So locals had begun to plan for new trams prior to the murders, but then they'd feared that the state would kind of build an automotive bridge and it would threaten McCarthy's isolation. And they said that if there was a road, there'd be a bridge, followed by tourists, more people, less isolation. But after the murders, they kind of agreed that actually there there is a need for some sort of access. And so the community got together and they secured $90,000 from the state. The residents cut logs for support towers and salvaged unused cables from the mines. And because of their lives on this Alaskan frontier, all of them were quite handy with tools. Jim Edwards, so Maxine who died's widower, he designed the tram cars and within two summer months the new trams were completed. So I quite liked that they ended up still coming together as a community even after everything that had happened. So two days after the massacre, on March the 3rd, 1983, the papers ran a story which read, an unemployed computer programmer has been charged with six counts of first-degree murder in the shooting deaths Tuesday of six of the 22 residents of this snowbound backcountry village. 
Louis D. Hastings, 39 years old, was also charged with one count of attempted murder and one count of assault in the first degree at his arraignment today in Anchorage. Mr. Hastings, who was being held on a $300,000 bond, did not enter a plea. So Hastings was tried in 1984 for six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder, and he pleaded no contest. He was sentenced on July 27th, 1984, to six 99-year terms for the first-degree murder convictions and to 20-year terms for the attempted murder convictions. So 634 years to be served consecutively. So there you go. Thank you for listening, guys. I didn't know whether they had the death penalty in Alaska or not, so I'm guessing not because this guy would have got it for sure. I'm not sure. I don't think they. I don't think they. They do, um, or did even then. So uh, yeah, maybe they do now, but I doubt it. So that's quite interesting. Um, God, yeah, what a brutal bastard. Yeah, absolutely horrific. And in such a like community where everybody knows everybody, and you just don't expect that to happen. He was there playing games with Chris the night before, and then he turns up and does that. I wondered with Chris, the reason that he want, had wanted to kill him, um, maybe first, was so that um, he could always kind of, when he eventually got caught, he could say that he was Chris. Maybe. They were also very close in age. Chris was quite young as well and, and Hastings was 39, whereas a lot of the other residents were retired or older people. So potentially yeah. that was another thing. That's a really good shout. I didn't even think of that. And just a little quick Google has highlighted that Alaska as a state has never had a death penalty. So territorial legislature, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, um, basically abolished capital punishment two years before Alaska gained statehood. So you are correct, they have never had a death penalty. So that would make sense as to why he didn't. I didn't know if they didn't at the time, but no, Mm. never have. Do you know what I find really weird about Alaska? It's so close to Russia. So if it you go, so like, close. it's weird, isn't it? Like the Bering Strait is, I, I, I mean, I'm sure I'll be wrong, but it's something like 20 miles or something. Um, you could probably swim from essentially America to Russia. But you definitely couldn't because you'd die. You would die because it's cold. And if you arrived in Russia, yeah, I think it's probably quite um, guarded as well, the, the borders around yeah. there. But yeah, absolutely. It's so close. Yeah, there's two very small islands, I think on the Bering Strait and one belongs to Russia and one belongs to America and you can see them from from the other island you know through the naked eye so mad isn't it yeah it's just weird I just find find that kind of geographical fact quite interesting but that's just me no I thought it was interesting too well done, Beth, and there's a good girl. Um, that was very you. interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting, and I was really shocked to hear that it was actually true. Yeah, yeah. Well, that shows that some of that show is true then. Mm, yeah, and that the people are real people. Um, it's just that sometimes perhaps this, the storylines are exaggerated for, for TV's benefit, but that's fair enough because not everybody has an exciting life every day of the year. Speak for yourself. 
Um, we hope you enjoyed it, guys. Let us know your thoughts as as per. Uh, you can find us on all the social medias, as we said, so Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Don't forget to check out the YouTube channel, and don't forget to tell your friends as well. Uh, tell your friends about us. A little I've never new said one. That before I like yeah, but I'm it. A, I'm only saying it because word of mouth is like uh, a really yeah. good way to kind of grow your audience. And definitely, um, you know, if you like the show, not everybody does. Uh, if you like the show, t- tell tell other people, and they'll tell I other people like as well. If you got to the end of this episode, you probably like the show. You'd be surprised, Bethan. You'd be surprised. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.